Hello everyone, my name is Mike, otherwise known as Narwin. Welcome to the second episode of the unofficial Reddit Detroit Pistons podcast. Getting just a couple days later than I'd planned. My initial plan, which continues to be my plan going forward, is to release episodes every weekend, uh, probably Sunday, sometimes Saturday. Uh, before I go any further, I'd just like to say thank you to everybody who listened to and also gave feedback on the first episode of the podcast. Uh, it's very much appreciated, and I hope you'll continue doing so on future episodes. It helps me to improve as a podcaster. I'm still very new at this. Uh, also, it is certainly nice to hear that people are enjoying the content, so thank you for that. Also, if anybody would like to be a guest on future episodes of the podcast, that would be wonderful. I uh, didn't have any volunteers for this week, but I am looking to have people on the show as often as possible. So let me know in any of the threads I post on the podcast or by private message uh, if you would like to guest. Obviously, a microphone is a necessity. So being that I do not have a guest this week, it's going to follow the same format as last week's episode, which is me giving my take on questions asked by you. Now, one of the questions I was asked concerned the playoff picture, the playoff race, key games, and so on and so forth. I'm recording this on Wednesday. We all know the playoff picture right now. Everybody has one game remaining, Charlotte, Orlando, and Detroit. Those are the games that matter. Charlotte plays Orlando, in fact. Detroit plays the New York Knicks tonight. So uh, our scenarios, for anybody who listens to this before the game, if the Pistons win and the Magic lose, the Pistons are the seventh seed. If the Pistons win and the Magic win, the Pistons are the eighth seed. If the Pistons lose and the Magic lose to the Hornets, then the Hornets are the eighth seed and the Pistons are out of the playoffs. Uh, Obviously, the ideal scenario would be for the Pistons to play against the Raptors to gain the seventh seed. The Raptors are still a very good team, don't get me wrong. Uh, the Bucks are just on an entirely different level. That is a fantastic team. I think that they have a solid chance of beating the Warriors in the finals, if that ends up being the finals. And they're just a fantastic, well-balanced, deep, and very well-coached team. Uh, they're deep even without Malcolm Brogdon and Nikola Mirotic, without whom uh, they will probably play the entire first round. They're still a spectacular team without them. Toronto, uh, the Pistons match up better against. Now, Toronto... Realistically, if the Pistons play against a healthy Raptors roster, even with a healthy Blake Griffin, which is looking increasingly unlikely, it would take something amounting to a miracle for the Pistons to win that series. The Raptors are just a significantly better team. In the first place, upsets, like seventh seed versus uh, second seed, upsets even, are extremely rare in the NBA. Generally, you have a team that gets in as the, uh, decisively as, you know, as the second seed and they're playing against the seventh seed, it's because they're a significantly better team. And in the NBA playoffs, generally, the, the better team is going to win a seven-game series nine times out of ten. Uh, those kinds of upsets are very rare. But playing against the Raptors will give the Pistons a better shot at a competitive series, which I'm sure we would all like to watch. It'd be good for the present, it'd be better for the future. And I think they're unlikely to get that against the Bucks. So we hope for the Raptors. Second question Concerned, uh, the Pistons' recent first quarter woes uh, mentioned three recent games where the Pistons had a great deal of trouble uh, early on, particularly in the first quarter. And I'm asked, is it a scheme problem, opposing defense, tough luck misses, or just being without Griffin? Uh, I'm going to go largely with coaching that ties into being without Griffin. So essentially, Dwayne Casey's offense depends a great deal upon Blake Griffin coming in and efficiently and on high volume, creating his own offense, offense that doesn't deal with offensive scheme at all. It just entirely deals with 
Griffin taking the ball and doing something with it. And that's something Casey has asked him to do night in and night out on high volume uh, every single night. And the Pistons have not often won when he's failed to do so. In general, if they have won, it's been because other guys have stepped up. And uh, at the same time, they've been playing against a pretty bad team. So when Blake Griffin isn't doing that effectively, and he's struggled since the All-Star break, now it wasn't an issue at first because everybody was shooting well and the Pistons had a pretty darn easy schedule. However, now we get to a point where not everybody is firing at all cylinders anymore because you had Reggie Jackson, Luke Kennard, Wayne Ellington, and Langston Galloway all shooting super well at the same time. That was unlikely. Uh, they were all shooting at really above, well above what could be expected as, as a reasonable baseline, and uh, they were playing against bad competition. So the Pistons were able to weather Griffin having some bad games. Uh, some of those guys have aggressed, actually. In fact, uh, all of them. Uh, Ellington only very recently, but Jackson Jackson was planned was bound to regress from shooting around forty five percent from three. Uh, Galloway was shooting well over forty percent. Kennard was shooting well over forty percent. That's just for, for no team is that going to last? So now you have situations where Blake Griffin struggles and Dwayne Casey's offense is kind of shot as a result because there really isn't very much to his offense. Without Griffin doing well, it becomes exposed as the very, very simple-minded thing it is. Uh, there's not very much ball movement. Uh, the offense doesn't really have much of an identity at all, and things just generally go very poorly. And there's a parallel to be drawn between this and how things were for Casey in his final years in Toronto as well, where he was similarly extremely dependent upon... DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry efficiently creating their own offense in isolation. And when they couldn't, his offenses tended to stumble quite a bit. Now, in fact, this led to a pretty significant change in Toronto during Casey's final year as a coach there, during his Coach of the Year campaign, in fact. And I think a lot of people don't know this, but Casey, during that season, during his final season there, when the Raptors won 59 games and their offense got rave reviews, was not the architect of that offense. Over the summer, after... The Raptors lost for the second straight time to the Cavaliers in the playoffs. Uh, Masai Ujiri, who was the general manager of Toronto, said unilaterally, we're moving to a new offense. We're going to build a new, modern, efficient NBA offense. And he did not tap Casey to plan that. Revealingly, he went to Nick Nurse instead. Nick Nurse is one of the assistants. He's now the head coach of the Raptors. And so the situation, more or less, for Casey was, we're not running your offense anymore. Uh, you're going to have to give that over to one of your assistants, and you have no choice in the matter. That's a really bad look for an NBA coach to be so unable to work within the necessities of, of a modern NBA offense, to be so bad at that, that his boss has to say, you know what, we're giving the job to somebody else. We'd still like you to be the coach here, but we don't think you have what it takes to plan and run that kind of offense. And the unfortunate fact of the matter is that Casey has never been a very good offensive coach. He's never been very creative. He's never been very good at efficiency or anything like that. And that became a greater and greater issue over the course of his final years in Toronto because since, say, 2014 or 2015, offense has really changed a great deal in the NBA. You've seen shooting become everything. You've seen efficiency really become a big thing. Teams wanting to have the best, as many shooters on the floor as they can to take the most efficient shots that they can. Uh, the Houston Rockets being the most notable example of this, of course, but everybody's doing it. And then you have the NBA this year stepping in and expressly making rules 
to allow shooters more freedom of motion and just essentially scoring has become more and more prolific and more and more efficient and so it's it's extraordinarily important it is the most important thing uh, for a coach in the nba to run a good offense to run an offense you know to run the most successful offense the offense uh, that gets the most out of your players that's the most efficient and so on and so forth and this is something casey has never been particularly good at and in fact is pretty darn mediocre at and that's a big problem needless to say casey does have his strengths as a coach he is well liked by his players he's good at running a locker room by all accounts uh, and he's a solid defensive coach he's a solid defensive mind by all accounts, he was heavily involved as uh, an assistant coach for the Dallas Mavericks in formulating the offense that's very effectively handled LeBron during the 2011 finals, which the Mavericks won. But he is not a good offensive coach. In fact, he's a pretty weak offensive coach, and that is a damning weakness in today's NBA. Indeed, it's probably the worst weakness for you to have in a league in which scoring is king, in which you're all but required to win on offense because the rules themselves strongly favor offense over defense. Now, another thing that figures into these slow starts is another one of Casey's very well-known flaws, which is his notorious tardiness in making adjustments. Casey, generally when things aren't going well, will just continue doing the exact same thing. Nonetheless, he'll call a timeout. Maybe they'll yell a bit. They'll go back on the floor. They'll feel the same lineup. They'll make the same decisions. They'll run the same offense. He's done a decent job at making adjustments out of halftime, for example, but that can often be too little too late. And a lot of the time, they're glaringly obvious things. So when the Pistons start slow, they're likely to continue slow until halftime. We've seen it time and time again. And against most good teams, you're not going to be able to come back like that. There's also the fact that Casey doesn't really game plan for individual games. He doesn't make changes based on the opponents he's facing. And so if, or at least before the games, and so if the opponent decides, hey, we're going to throw something special at you, the Pistons are likely to take it on the nose on offense, uh, early on in the game at least, and they might not recover again until halftime, if ever. Uh, for example, the Nuggets in the game a few weeks ago, in which I believe the Pistons scored eight points in the first quarter, here's what the Nuggets did. They said, okay, well, you've got Bruce Brown on the floor. We know he can't shoot at all. And so we're more than happy to sag off of him, and we're just going to take his defender and double-team whoever's going into the lane, whether that be Jackson, whether it be Griffin, even if Drummond has the ball, we're going to go and double-team him because you can't do anything about it. If you pass the ball to Brown, then what's he going to do? Take a three? He shoots those at like 28%. That's a shot we'd love to have him take. And so the Pistons just couldn't get anywhere. Griffin has to get down low. Sure, he's a good, uh, good three-point shooter now, but really still... If he wants to do maximum damage, he's got to be able to operate down low, and he couldn't do that there. Uh, they couldn't get the ball to any cutters. Guys just couldn't get to, just basically the offense stalled out because the Nuggets were able to throw a wrench into Casey's very predictable offense, that offense which essentially depends upon Blake Griffin being unstoppable. And, you know, as we saw, the Pistons came and really got back into it in the second half. It helped that the Nuggets went extremely cold. But they had a gigantic deficit to dig themselves out of. And that's just not okay. And it's something that has happened on a very regular basis. Now, I guess, why don't we just take this time to launch into what else Casey hasn't done particularly well uh, as an offensive coach. You can look at lineups, for one thing. Uh, that's pretty easy. We can, we can go straight with Bruce Brown uh, through his lineup woes. 
Now, uh, let me re just reiterate this first. I've said this elsewhere, but I'd like to say it again. I like Bruce Brown. He's a hardworking kid. He's got a lot of potential. He never takes a single moment off. He seems to be very team-focused. He's got a lot of potential. Uh, if he can get his shooting together, he can become a little bit more refined as a defender. He's got a future with this organization. He's looks to be very versatile. He could potentially line up at three positions. Uh, he's a pretty good passer. He's got pretty pretty good court vision. Uh, he's pretty athletic. He's actually quite athletic. And uh, he could be a real leader on this team going forward. And uh, I've you know felt that way since I saw him play in Summer League, where he had pretty much all of the exact same flaws he has now. And right now, we're dealing with the Bruce Brown we have in the moment, not the Bruce Brown we might have in a few years. And the Bruce Brown we have right now is arguably very, very unready to be playing in the NBA at all, and is certainly not ready to be starting, and is certainly not shown anything that demonstrates he should have had a starting gig to begin with, certainly not that he should have maintained it this long. And you should note that Bruce Brown actually started for this roster in the very first game of the season because Reggie Bullock was injured. So this is not a fluke. And whereas guys like Stanley Johnson, for example, he lasted only seven games in the starting lineup because he couldn't shoot. Bruce Brown was allowed to start in the first game and then brought on as a long-term starter despite the fact that everybody knew he couldn't shoot. I mean, with Stanley Johnson, it was kind of like, well, you know what? We're hoping he's made the leap because that'd be huge and we're going to give him, you know, it's his job to lose. It's like, okay, well, that's perfectly reasonable. With Bruce Brown, everybody from Dwayne Casey on down, on up to the management, on down to everybody, including everybody who watched the guy in summer league or preseason, knew that Bruce Brown can't shoot and generally just provides, can't provide anything on offense at the NBA level these days. So the fact that he's in the starting lineup, nonetheless, is a mystery, even if he were an elite defender, which he isn't. Uh, I mentioned in last week's episode that defensive specialists in the rotation anywhere uh, who just can't shoot, who don't provide anything on offense, are exceedingly rare in the starting lineup. There are zero of them in the starting lineup uh, of any team in the NBA. Uh, Bruce Brown is the only one. And, of course, I'm not including centers. There are plenty of centers who can't create their own offense. Um, but if we look at every other position, Bruce Brown is the only one, and he's not an elite defender. He is the worst three-point three -point defender on the team. He is one of the worst three-point defenders of any starter in the NBA, again, outside of centers. And he's incredibly foul-prone. He's a terrible pick-and-roll defender. This guy doesn't really provide that elite defense, so there's no real argument to be made for him in the starting lineup at all. But what's so worrisome is that Dwayne Casey doesn't seem to realize the gigantic no-no he's committing and putting out on the floor a guy who just can't provide anything on offense. It's, it's like we've said, offense is king. You know, it's the most important place uh, to be successful. And you'd much rather have a guy out there who can provide some semblance of shooting and bad defense uh, than a guy who can provide nothing on offense and provides pretty good defense. Nonetheless, you've got Bruce Brown, who started more than 50 games despite being a complete offensive zero. And what he does is render the starting lineup four versus five every single time because he pretty much can't do anything. And that's a big problem. We saw it, you know, as, as I mentioned it with, with Denver, they're one of many teams who has just simply said, well, we don't need to defend you, so we're not going to. And that's a big problem. It, it lessens the effectiveness of the offense and it makes things difficult on everybody else. Uh, you know, who knows how much extra beating Blake Griffin has had to take because he has one less guy to pass to. And he said that, you know, he's had to fight through how many more double teams because Brown's defender uh, on a great deal of plays is just going to go cover Griffin instead. What's the worst that's going to happen? Brown might shoot. He'll probably miss close to 75% of the time. And uh, if he doesn't, maybe he'll drive the basket. Uh, statistically speaking, he is one of the worst players in, in the NBA layups this season. He's terrible at it. 
So if he wants to try that, well, that's great for the opposing defense too. Or he'll do what he usually does, which is just pass the ball off and the offense has to reset. And that's great for the defense too, because then the Pistons have to reset and they've used probably half or more of the shot clock and then maybe the possession's wasted. Now, I think we can be reasonably sure that Dwayne Casey has Bruce Brown out there for his defense. Uh, I've got to think he's somehow aware to some degree that Brown's defense isn't at the elite level, but I digress. The fact is that Dwayne Casey seems to be a coach. When you look at what he's doing with Bruce Brown and what he's, uh, you know, what he's done with Thon Maker since he's been around, he seems to be a coach who believes on an unfortunate level that you can still win by emphasizing defense at the tremendous expense of offense, and that's just not the case anymore. You can't defend uh, the same way that you once could. We certainly can't defend the same way that Pistons fans who were around, for example, for the going-to-work era can. That defense has been legitimately, by the letter of, of NBA law, illegal since, I believe, uh, 2006, the rule changes were. Uh, it's just it's not possible anymore. So you see Casey give up a lot of offensive firepower on, on guys like Brown and guys like Maker because he thinks that they're real defensive stalwarts, and sometimes they do well on defense, but the cost on offense is tremendous and not worth it at all. But this brings us to further examples of lineup issues where Casey actually takes it one step further. So lately Griffin has had... Uh, games that he's missed, games where he hasn't been able to play very much. So who do you replace him with in the lineup? Well, if you want to run an effective offense, really your only option is Glenn Robinson III. He's not a great player, but he's the best option because he can play at power forward, and he provides at least something on offense. You've already got Brown out there. Ideally, you don't have to play Brown, but let's just call that a given at this point. You can't put yet another guy out there who just can't contribute anything uh, yeah, that's exactly what Casey did. Instead of playing Glenn Robinson, he put Thon Maker out there. Now, when you put Thon Maker out there with Andre Drummond and with Bruce Brown in the starting lineup, you are hamstringing your starting lineup on offense right out of the gate because you have three guys there who cannot create their own offense and who can't shoot. So you've got only two guys on the floor who are able to actually create any offense, who are actually able to shoot, and that makes things tremendously easy on the defense. And so the results were very predictable. Every time that lineup came out, they did poorly on offense, and the Pistons ended up behind. And Casey did that for two straight games. And indeed, in the game against Indiana, the second game against Indiana, rather, when Griffin was out, he went one step further than that. Now, Glenn Robinson had played decently well in the first game against the Pacers. He had seven points. He'd done all right. Throughout the second game, for the vast majority of it, there were only two shooters in the floor for the Pistons. Casey was playing some combination, three at a time, of Luer, Maker, Drummonds, Pachulia, Brown, and Smith. And you know what? That means easy days for the Indiana Pacers. That's a really easy offense to defend. On the other end, like I've said, unfortunately, you just can't defend the way that you used to be able to. So the Pistons ended up behind. The Pacers were still able to score. Uh, the Pistons were not. And those were winnable games, both of those. You're missing Oladipo, not only him, you're missing Darren Collison, the starting point guard. You're missing Wesley Matthews, who's played a lot of minutes at shooting guard. Uh, ever since the trade deadline, those guys have averaged 25 points between them on good efficiency. The Pistons, even without Griffin, had an easy shot at winning both of those games. Uh, and maybe they would have won one of them had Dwayne Casey done things a bit differently. Unfortunately, he didn't. So it's just these kinds of lineup decisions that really make you question, you know, what's going through Dwayne Casey's head. And, uh, you know, if he really knows what he's doing well enough to run an offense in, in, in the modern NBA at all, let alone for a team like the Pistons, 
where you don't really have a ton of offensive talents and you really have to maximize what you've got. And he doesn't really do that either, unfortunately. I mean, you look at guys I like to bring up a lot, Luke Kennard. So if we look at Luke, uh, he's a guy who is at his best when he's allowed to handle the ball. He's at his best when he is heavily involved in the offense. He does his best when he's shooting on volume. Generally, when he's doing those things, he does very well. And when Casey has allowed him to do those things, he's done very well when he's given him help uh, with picks, off-ball screens, and so on and so forth. Uh, Luke has really delivered. Uh, unfortunately, Casey seems to forget about him a great deal of the time, and uh, Luke is either shooting on low volume, uh, rarely, and he does poorly at that, uh, or he's barely involved in the offense at all. So this is a case where you have your best shooter, and you're, not, you're, just, you're just simply not utilizing him how you should. Uh, Luke Kennard, under no circumstances, should be standing idly in the corner for long periods of time for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a waste, a waste of a very important asset for a team that doesn't have much shooting at all. And number two, it makes his, his presence on the court worse than pointless because uh, Luke isn't a good defender. He's just, he, he's, he has very poor lateral mobility. He's got poor wingspan. If you want to put him out there, you better be using him on offense because he's a defensive liability. Yet, for example, against the Thunder, not only was he not being used, Casey was leaving him out there to get eaten for lunch by Paul George. Like, he was defending Paul George for a significant stretch. And he has not the—I mean, Luke could—bless him, could work as hard as he wanted to, you know, to, to just put up the defensive performance of his life. He's not going to defend Paul George. It's not possible. He just—he can't do it. Uh, at other times, he was out there defending Westbrook. And again, you ask Casey, what are you doing? You're not using your best shooter. Uh, and at the same time, you're leaving him out there to get obliterated on defense while you're doing that. Uh, you look at, you know, just a stellar example against the Hornets. So down the stretch, the Pistons made that big comeback. And so down the stretch, what do you have? Well, instead of having Thon Maker setting off-ball screens for Luke to get him open, you have Thon Maker shooting spot-up threes while Luke stands idly, completely forgotten in the corner. Uh, this brings us to another point where Casey just doesn't understand the certain aspects of efficiency, which are uh, getting your best possible shots for your best possible shooters, uh, warning guys away from shots that they're bad at, getting the shots the guy they're, guys they're good at, uh, eliminating the bad shots from your offenses you know, to the degree that you can. And Casey, unfortunately, doesn't really do any of this. And it comes back to bite the Pistons. It just does. None of this stuff is really acceptable in today's NBA, yet it happens constantly. Even you look down to the level of how it took the guy 40-something games to start using Reggie Jackson on the pick-and-roll in high volume. Reggie Jackson was brought to Detroit to run the pick-and-roll with Andre Drummond. It's what he does. He runs, you know, if, if he could pick his ideal NBA game, he would be running a pick-and-roll on every play. He has said that. He has said in the past that his ideal uh, his ideal uh, season of the NBA is him running a pick and roll on every play on the way to the on the way to winning a championship. You've got him alongside Andre Drummond, who is a guy who sets a lot of picks and rolls to the basket, and that's really what he's done with, uh, during a, a lot of his time with Detroit. And it took Casey about forty games to start using them on high volume because his offense was essentially send Griffin to the basket. So you know other minor stuff like you know the usage of Griffin in the first place. Griffin when he's with the Clippers. Uh, Doc Rivers used to run him on pick and rolls pretty often as the ball handler because you know what? You run him around a DeAndre Jordan screen and then DeAndre rolls to the basket. The defense has the choice. Uh, we can either double team Griffin on the way to the net. He's a good passer. He'll lob it to DeAndre Jordan and that's it because you know you give up two points. Or you defend Griffin one-on-one -on -one of the baskets and take the pretty good chance that he's going to beat you. Has Dwayne Casey used that on any volume? No. Why? 
who knows? He's just not creative enough. Doesn't like to change his offense up that uh, that much or, or what? I, I just I honestly couldn't tell you. Uh, other things, Doc Rivers and, and uh, Blake Griffin's last season with the Clippers, they built that team around him uh, so that he would be surrounded by shooters because the idea was, you know what, you put Blake on the low block in the paint and you back him down. And the choice on the part of the defense is either you double team him, which you're going to have to do with somebody from the perimeter, uh, and thereby leave somebody open, or you let him just back down to the basket and take a pretty darn good chance he's going to score. And Doc Rivers had his perimeter guys navigating off-ball screens and doing what they could to get open. Now in Detroit, what happens? Well, Griffin, you know, 80-90% of the time is just going straight for the basket while his teammates just stand idly on the perimeter and nobody does anything. And that makes it a lot easier on the defense and considerably harder on Griffin himself. So I'm not going to go any further with this. Just the point is that we have, unfortunately, another coach yet again in Detroit who is unable to get anything like the most out of the players he has available, is not able to make them on most occasions, even the sum of their parts, let alone more than that. Now, does he have the greatest personnel to work with? No. This team, as we all know, is not particularly well built for the rigors of the modern NBA, uh, certainly offensively speaking, and he has done a pretty good job uh, defensively. But... Uh, coaching is something that's uh, a variable. You know, you can't control your roster. Sure, you, you know, these guys are going to play it at a better or worse level, uh, depending on the game. But something you always can't control is, is, is putting them in a position uh, to succeed, putting them in a position where they have the greatest chance to excel, the greatest chance to win. And at least speaking from an offensive standpoint, Dwayne Casey doesn't do that, and it's a big problem. And it's a problem that I don't see any easy solution to, barring Ed Stefanski deciding to do the same thing in Detroit that uh, Masai Ujiri did to Casey in Casey's final year in Toronto, which is just to say, sorry, <laughs> we're, you're just going to have to let one of the assistants point up the offense instead because what you're doing isn't working. So moving on, the next question concerns the Pistons salary cap situation this season. As for an explanation of the Collective Bargaining Act with respect to exceptions, the luxury tax, the salary cap, and so on and so forth. So I wrote an article about this about nine months ago. I'll post that link in the topic in which I post this subreddit, just in case anybody would like a visual aid. Now, there are three terms I think will be most important in understanding where the Pistons are and just understanding the CBA in general, at least how it pertains to the Pistons this summer. First of these is the salary cap. Now, the NBA has what's called a soft salary cap, which means you are allowed to use exceptions to exceed the salary cap. This is in contrast to the NHL's hard cap, which you simply cannot exceed except under very specific circumstances. Uh, in the NBA, uh, most teams will be over the cap through use of these exceptions. There was only one team, the Sacramento Kings, which was under the cap this season. All the other 29 were above the cap. So that's one concept. The second is the luxury tax. So there is a luxury tax line for every dollar in salary any team pays past that luxury tax line. They have to pay a matching dollar amount in tax to the NBA. Uh, this can vary based on how much above the tax they are. So the luxury tax is intended to enforce parity by penalizing teams that spend a ton of money because not all teams are financially created equal. There is a further penalty called the repeater tax. Uh, that triggers for any team that had been in the luxury tax for three of the previous four seasons, and that just multiplies the penalties. So a lot of teams will just avoid the luxury tax to any degree for that reason, uh, just to avoid starting the clock on the repeater, uh, because you don't want to do that unless you feel like you've got a contender right away, because uh, you really want to put off the repeater tax uh, as long as you can. 
And that's one reason why the Pistons avoided the luxury tax uh, this last season. Though in general, it's just not something you don't want to pay into the luxury tax unless uh, you think that's your at least, uh, you know, assured contender for maybe the second round or something like that. Some teams will do it just to make the playoffs. And the third term, though this pertains less to the Pistons, is the luxury tax apron. That is $6 million above the luxury tax threshold. And exceeding the apron basically just limits your access to exceptions, uh, makes for harsher uh, salary matching and trades. And in some cases, uh, certain actions will hard cap your team at the luxury tax apron. But the Pistons are very unlikely to get there. So when it comes to the exceptions themselves, uh, there are several of them. The first is the rookie exception. You're always allowed to exceed the cap in order to sign your draft picks. Uh, the second is the mid-level exception. Mid-level exception is available to teams every year. Uh, it's basically meant to enable teams to add a depth piece when they're over the cap already. Uh, the MLE will be near uh, $9 million, I believe, in this coming season. Uh, there are actually two forms of the mid-level exception, one for teams that are below the apron and one for teams uh, that are above or for which uh, using the full MLE would send them uh, above the apron. So the Pistons will have access to the full mid-level exception. You can use this to sign one player or you can spread it across several players. Uh, it's not a very big exception, but it can be used to acquire a, a solid depth piece. Uh, another is the biannual exception. You get this every other year. Uh, I believe it's in the area of $3 million next season. The Pistons used it two seasons ago on Anthony Tolliver, so they'll have access to that again this upcoming season. Uh, another is the veteran minimum exception. So basically, this allows you to sign players at a veteran uh, minimum salary. In terms of actual salary, uh, the veteran minimum increases for every player based on how much experience they have. But for the sake of encouraging teams to sign veterans rather than uh, moving toward younger players because still, you know, they're paid less by the minimum. The actual cap hits and actual salary of any veteran is equal to that of a veteran with two years of experience. So for example, the Pistons, or excuse me, uh, Jose Calderon and Zaza Pachulia, who've been around a long time, are actually getting paid, I think, in the area of $2.5 million uh, this season. But the NBA picked up everything above the $1.5 million uh, second-year veteran salary in terms of the salary itself and the cap hit. And the last and most commonly used is the uh, what's called the bird exception, named after Larry Bird, uh, often referred to as bird rights. Now, bird rights allow you to exceed the cap to re-sign uh, the players that are on your roster. Bird rights are earned by spending three years in the league without changing teams in free agency and without clearing waivers. Uh, bird rights can be traded. For example, Avery Bradley, uh, the Pistons would have been able to re-sign had they kept him and decided to re-sign him uh, because they had his bird rights because uh, he hadn't met uh, either of those conditions. You know, he hadn't uh, changed teams in free agency, he hadn't passed through waivers. Uh, those are full bird rights, which allow you to re-sign a player at whatever contract you want. Uh, there's another form called early bird rights, which require only two years, uh, but you can only give them uh, a restricted contract, which is based on the salary they'd already been earning. It's irrelevant to the Pistons because they have nobody on the roster under the you know who has early bird in any event. Now, on to the numbers themselves, the salary cap for next season is tentatively set at $109 million. That looks likely just based on circumstances to remain the case. It's changed in the past occasionally after the playoffs. If the playoffs are longer than expected, which means more revenue, occasionally it'll be higher or shorter than expected means a little bit lower because less revenue from the playoffs. 
But we'll just go with $109 million because that seems likely to remain. And the luxury tax is set at $132 million. So the Pistons will very likely choose not to guarantee the second season on Glenn Robinson's contract because he has been very disappointing. So assuming that comes to pass, after they sign their draft picks, they will be at around $116 million in obligations. That leaves them $16 million under the luxury tax line. The biannual exception, assuming they use it fully, and the mid-level exception, again, assuming they use it fully, will total to about $12 million. That leaves you $4 million under the luxury tax line. That's enough to sign a couple of veteran minimum contracts, and that should round out the roster. This assumes, of course, that the Pistons don't opt to re-sign any of the players whose contracts are expiring, and I will get to that next. So that next question is, who do we re-sign and potential players who can replace them? So as far as the latter goes, uh, it's unfortunately at this stage extremely difficult to tell what the market will be. Uh, You've got a bit of an unusual situation this summer. A couple of things. Number one, some of the absurd contracts that were signed in 2016 are expiring which means that a good number of teams will have cap space. Second, there are quite a few maximum uh, potential maximum contract free agents coming out of the markets, and a lot of teams have hoarded cap space against that, hoping to sign some of them. So a couple of things could happen. First off, some teams are going to strike out on those free agents, and really they'll be the ones who determine the market. They'll have two options. Do they want to spend an exorbitant amount of money giving contracts that are way overpriced to mid-level and upper-mid-level players? If they do, then the market gets set on those players and it's very high. They get priced out of the Pistons range. If, however, they decide, or enough of them decide, well, instead of overpaying these players, we're just going to wait until next season and see what happens, then the market on those players may be set lower. And so... Some of the guys, basically it would mean that more players would be attainable for the Pistons in the middle-level exception, which would be pretty great. However, there is no way to know for right now what's going to happen. So it's tough to tell who will be in Detroit's price range. Now, as far as who is currently on the roster, who's going to be a free agent, who should Detroit keep, who should Detroit let go? I'm going to start with Ish Smith. This is probably the most prominent free agent. I think very highly of Ish. Uh, I really like him for his character, uh, for who he is as a person. By all accounts, he's a great teammate, and he's been pretty good in Detroit. That said, I think it's important that the Pistons let Ish Smith go for a variety of reasons. First, it'll give them more flexibility to address other needs elsewhere, and this team does have other needs. Second, however, he just doesn't fit this team anymore. Ish is an adequate backup and often a good backup when he's on the floor with guys who can play off ball. Ish, unfortunately, cannot play off ball at all. He is just simply a very bad shooter, and that really limits his fit. So he once had Tobias, KCP was an okay shooter from time to time, Tolliver, Kennard, Bullock, Bradley, even Bradley, yes, he was, until the end, a pretty good catch-and-shoot three-point shooter for the Pistons. Now the team's got significantly less shooting. At the same time, the team has more ball-dominant players. Jackson's a ball-dominant player. Griffin's a heavily ball-dominant player. And it's tough for Ish to play with those guys because possession is a zero-sum game. If Ish has the ball, those guys don't. And uh, they are more important to the team than he is. They are more effective with the ball than he is. And that makes him a difficult fit because you essentially have to march to his beat rather than having the flexibility you would like. And third... And this is also a matter of fit, but I think it's important enough to merit its own category, is Luke Kennard. Now, I consider Luke Kennard extremely important to the future of this team. I think it's very important that the Pistons maximize what he has to offer. He's shown himself perfectly capable of helming an offense. 
He is an excellent shooter. He can shoot from anywhere. He's got to be closely guarded. That often means that guys are going to be open. He's a good passer with good court vision. He also thrives on having a large role in the offense when he's able to handle the ball, when he's able to shoot the ball on high volume is when he's best. And this makes him pretty incompatible with Ish Smith if you're going to want to give Luke that. Ish, as I mentioned, is extremely ball dominant, is not good uh, off the ball. So if you want to get good use out of him, you have to give him the ball, and that means Luke can't have it. So I think for the sake of giving Luke maximum opportunity, you really have to let Ish go, which will have additional benefits as well. It'll free up the shooting guard a glut a bit by moving Luke to point guard, thus freeing up more minutes for Kyrie Thomas, who may figure to be an important part of the rotation going forward. More minutes conceivably for Svi Mikaljuk, who is a shooting guard is his native position. He'll play some small forward as well. And it'll also allow you to use the full mid-level and biannual exceptions in order to address other team needs, which very much do exist. And finally, even irrespective of everything else, do you really want to be giving a multi-year contract to a non-shooting point guard who's already over the age of 30 when you've got a lot of contracts coming off the books in 2020 and you really want to have maximum flexibility at that point to remake the roster? So moving on to Wayne Ellington, uh, this one is a little bit more conditional. I know people have been very high on Ellington because a shooter of his ilk who can come off screens and shoot quick threes with a decent degree of accuracy is very valuable. Now, there are a few things to consider. Number one, the guy has been punching a little bit above his weight. He's started a a regress lately. He's a guy you can count on for 37, maybe 38%, which is good, but not world beating. You also want to consider that there is a glut of shooting guards in this roster, and most of them are young guys the Pistons would really like to give opportunity to. You've got Bruce Brown, uh, who's already getting more opportunities should, but nonetheless, you've got Kyrie Thomas, you've got McCulloch, who again, uh, will probably see some minutes at shooting guard. Uh, you've got Kennard if the Pistons opt to keep Ish Smith. So do you really want to be signing uh, another shooting guard who might take minutes away from those guys, uh, especially because you've already got a significant amount of money committed to it? especially with Galloway. And finally, as with Smith, though again, that was a more minor consideration for the argument for not keeping him. Do you want to give a multi-year deal, which is probably what he'll ask for, to a guy who's well over 30? Again, especially because uh, come next summer, you're going to want to have maximum flexibility. So I think unless you manage to move Galloway, you better let Ellington go. Even then, you don't want to sign him for more than two years. And ideally, he'll be a guy playing off the bench. And the last two free agents taking out of the equation, Glenn Robinson III, to whom, again, I think the Pistons will not guarantee the second-year contract of, are Jose Calderon and Zaza Pachulia. Calderon demonstrated with beyond any shadow of a doubt that his NBA career is pretty much over. And that's fine. He's had a long and relatively good career. He was a disaster for the Pistons this year. By all accounts, he was valuable in the locker room, but you want to have a guy you can actually put on the court. So you let him go. Zaza, Who knows? He is adequate as a third-string center. He is no longer good as a backup center. He, too, is a valuable locker room presence by all accounts. So if you can sign him to a minimum deal as your third-string center, maybe you keep him, maybe you don't. That depends on how much you value him behind the scenes. Moving on, the next question asks about team needs this offseason and who would be ideal to fill those. As far as the latter part of the question, as I said earlier in the show, I think that's really tough to peg right now. We just don't know what the market's going to be as far as market price goes for any particular level of player. Also, we don't entirely know who is going to be available yet and finally it'll depend on whom the Pistons select in the draft so now as far as team needs go I think your number one need has to be small forward it's a very important position and the Pistons have had a solid small forward for one season out of the past eight since Tayshon 
started to go into significant decline. That was Marcus Morris in his first season with Detroit because he's severely regressed in his next season. And uh, that's a big void to have. It's very important to have a good small forward. So that's got to be Detroit's first priority over the summer. I think you try to find one in the draft, and it's entirely possible that a decent 3 and D small forward would be available when the Pistons pick. If not, I guess you try to go look for one with the mid-level exception, but I think it's much better if you can find a guy in the draft, even if it's a guy who you really have to take a chance on because that's just such an important position for the Pistons going forward. And who knows? Maybe you swing on a guy who's down in his luck with the MLE and he ends up being really good, but that's just not something you can bank on. The second need, assuming that you get that small forward, uh, assuming that he can play in the starting lineup, is a starting shooting guard. Now the Pistons have a lot of guys in the system, and who knows? Kyrie Thomas was pegged as a potential 3 and D starting shooting guard coming out of college. Uh, a lot of people are surprised he didn't go in the first round of the draft. Maybe he's got that in him. Apparently, Dwayne Casey likes him quite a bit, and uh, so does the front office. Maybe Bruce Brown can improve, in which case he can slot in a shooting guard. Uh, as I said, I think Kennard's off the bench. But maybe one of those two guys can do it. Now, if the organization has the faith that they can, is another story. And maybe you keep Ellington and start him for a season, but... Again, I don't think that would be the ideal scenario. So you're looking at a starting shooting guard. Beyond that, you need a backup big. Now, here's where the issue of Thon Maker's fit comes in. That's why I say a backup big rather than a backup center or power forward. Maker doesn't really fit at either power forward or a center. Now, at center, it lets him defend in the paint, which he's good at. But he's an awful interior scorer, and he doesn't really compete well against the many guys at the position who are just tremendously bulkier than he is. Now, you can play him power forward, but he's not a good perimeter shooter, and he's not a good perimeter defender. And that brings him out of the paint, and the paint is where he is good at defending. So he's just a tough fit. I think if the Pistons decide he is the backup, you know, if he is a backup going forward, you have to play him at center because that's the better fit. You just got to hope he improves as an interior scorer. And uh, also that he finally bulks up a bit. Uh, he is a decent fit with Griffin on the floor. If he can improve that perimeter shot, in that case, great. You play him at center because Griffin does best with a floor spacer who can defend the rim. And maybe Thon will be able to fit that bill someday. So in that case, you need to back a power forward. And maybe this is a bit predictable, but I say you bring back Anthony Tolliver, who could probably be had on the biannual exception again. He had a pretty good season in Minnesota. Ultimately, he largely dropped out of the rotation just because after the trade for uh, where they got Dario Saric and Robert Covington between Saric and Taj Gibson, there just wasn't space for Tolliver anymore. He's on the older side, so he's not going to demand a high salary. I'd imagine he would love to come back to Detroit, and he would be very valuable here. Still a solid defender, still a good three-point shooter, still a very valuable veteran leader. And moving on, the final question pertains to if a backup center will be a position of need for the Pistons this summer, and whether or not it would be wise for the Pistons to spend a first-round pick on a center in the upcoming draft. I think whether or not backup center is a position of need depends on the organization's stance on Thon Maker. If they believe that he is a part of the team's future, if they have faith in him as a major part of the rotation, and if they're willing to invest in him, then I would say no, backup center is not a position of need because... As I said before, I think that's the only viable place you can play him. As far as whether or not they do have that faith in him, I would guess that the answer is yes. 
based on the fact that they traded him and that Dwayne Casey seems to like him quite a bit. You never know, but there's also the fact that the Pistons uh, don't have a lot of cap space to work with this summer, so it would be really be great for them if Thonmaker would work out as the backup center. As far as taking the center in the draft, again, I would say no for a few reasons. First off, the team just has much greater needs elsewhere in the rotation, particularly at small forward. As I said, is just a position of dire need for the Pistons right now. Like They desperately need their starting small forward of the future. You can also look a bit further into the organization's motivations. This is less what I think and more what I think is likely. This is an organization that, for better or worse, is looking to compete every year and is certainly looking to compete right now. So I don't see them spending a draft pick at a position that really isn't as much of a concern at the moment. Whether or not you think that Thon Maker, or whether or not the organization rather thinks that Thon Maker is, is ready to be the backup center. You do have Andre Drummond, whom you're paying a max contract to, and he eats up the vast majority of the minutes at center. He plays a ton of minutes. Second reason is if you're really going to take a chance on a guy, and let's face it, the Pistons probably will to a certain degree be taking a chance on a guy at the 15th, or 16th pick, which is where they'll be selecting based on their ultimate position in playoff seating. Uh, you want to be taking a chance on a guy in a position with a higher ceiling with more to contribute. Center is the position you can afford to shirk most in today's NBA. If you're strong at every other position, then you can just throw a modest amount of money at a guy who rebounds fairly well, defends the rim fairly well, and can play garbage man to some decent degree and still have a pretty strong roster. So if you're taking a chance on a guy, be a guy who can shoot, guy who can create offense, you're inherently going to be looking at probably a much greater potential gain if you draft at another position. And third and finally, there just aren't really too many good centers in this season's draft. The only one you can say is good enough that he would legitimately fall if they were still available where the Pistons are picking is Jackson Hayes. He's very unlikely to be available. Uh, ball ball might be he's not a guy I would take a chance on uh, he's already a tremendous injury risk and there's really no use in drafting a guy who might not be able to stay on the floor also he's likely some years away and once again this is an organization that's really aiming to compete right now but you know all told with the draft I would just say that small forward and shooters are just a, a way bigger need for the Pistons right now than another center and so that'll be it for today's show I'd like to thank you all for listening as I said earlier feedback is always helpful what you enjoyed, what you think I can improve on, and what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Hope you'll tune in again next week, and go Pistons!